Thank you, Andre. Good morning, church. Good to see you uh, again this morning or to be with you in this way. I trust and hope that you are well this morning and it's always uh, a real joy to be able to come together uh, each week, even in a, um, a virtual way through our uh, these online means uh, as we've been doing. So if you're tuning in this morning and you're uh, visiting with us or you're new to us, I just again want to extend a welcome to you. Very glad to have you with us this morning and we trust that uh, your time spent will be of value to you and to your faith in the Lord. And so again, welcome and uh, I look forward to meeting you in person when we have opportunity. Uh, I'm excited to uh, get into the scripture this morning, so if you'll take your Bible, please, and meet me in Acts chapter 25, Acts chapter 25. Continuing our study through Acts, we come to this chapter this morning to find the Apostle Paul in a prison cell in Caesarea in, uh, in the Judea province of the Roman Empire. Paul was initially taken into custody back in chapter 1, as you may recall, through no fault of his own. He has been placed before one court after another, and this is the fourth in a series of five defenses in which he's having to explain his faith in Jesus and his behavior that stems from such faith. The the first three trials, if you want to call them that, those happened in quick succession in a matter of just a couple of weeks, but, but the span between the third and the fourth is much longer as two years have passed between the final verse of chapter 24 and the opening statement of chapter 25. For Paul, it's been, it's been the same song, different verse. Like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, he keeps reliving, he keeps waking up and reliving the same scenario over and over again without any of the the laughs or advantages uh, enjoyed in that film. And now there's been a change in government, a new governor before whom he must again plead his case who yet again, disappointingly, fails to bring justice to bear. Now in my Bible... In the the heading in my Bible that hangs over this section, it simply reads, Paul appeals to Caesar. However, uh, just as Paul appeals to an earthly authority, I believe he ultimately points us to Jesus who brings us to God. And that's what I want to consider with you this morning. Now, the first half of the chapter is Luke's retelling of the events for us, for the reader while the second half is the governor's recap of the same proceedings for King Agrippa. So I'm just going to focus primarily on verses 1 through 12 this morning and leave verses 13 through 27 for you to explore on your own, should you so desire. So with that, take your Bible, please, and let me read uh, Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. 
Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat in the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done nothing wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't, ex- I don't seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Will you pray with me? God, we want to thank you for our time this morning, our time together, and now our time in the Scriptures. And, uh, and we ask that as we open our Bible, would you open us to... It's truth that we might hear your voice and understand your will and learn from the example of the Apostle Paul here in this chapter and therefore live differently. Would you grow us in this way? Grow us in our faith, in our trust, and in our obedience for Jesus' sake. And in his name, amen. Now, if you've ever had the experience of stepping into something uh, unexpected, something for which you're totally unprepared, something you completely underestimated, then you can probably relate with Festus in this chapter. He has recently been installed the, the governor of Judea, appointed by the Roman emperor to represent Roman interests in that region and to ensure Roman rule. He is settling into a new job, a new office, a new staff, a new position that carries new and significant responsibilities. And like anyone beginning in a new place of employment, I'm sure he wants to start well. So within three days of his arrival In Judea, he leaves his offices in Caesarea and heads to visit the holy city of Jerusalem, presumably to begin the process of building relations with the Jewish community and their leadership. After all, he is now responsible for them and accountable to Rome for their actions and compliance. While in Jerusalem, Festus meets the chief priests and other leading men of the Jews who as we immediately discover, remain relentless in their pursuit of the Apostle Paul. They begin to voice their case against Paul. 
Though two years had passed, time hadn't caused cooler heads to prevail. If anything, it only stoked the fires of opposition and hatred, and their animosity toward him had not subsided in the least. Right away, we learn of their desire to have Festus reopen the case and, as a favor to them, move the trial from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where they were plotting an ambush on Paul's life. You know, Governor, I imagine them saying, we, we would be oh so grateful if you did this for us, and we can certainly make sure that, that this little favor to us would come back to you in many favorable ways also. But to his credit, Festus stood his ground. And though it's unclear if he knew of the conspiracy to ambush Paul, he was determined to not let them dictate terms, especially in these early days of their political relationship. Paul was being held in Caesarea. Festus's court and headquarters were in Caesarea. Therefore, if they wanted to bring any charges against Paul, they'd have to come to Caesarea to do so. So after staying in Jerusalem for a little over a week, the scene shifts back to Caesarea in verse 6. Festus returned home, and the very next day he was ready to decide the case, ordering Paul to be brought in. Eager to make a good impression, he is essentially stepping into the batter's box to face live pitching for the first time, but little does he know he's about to see his very first curveball, which, as those who've played baseball know very well, hitting your first curveball is no easy task, especially when you're expecting something right down the middle. Paul's accusers were there, of course, the Jewish entourage who had come from Jerusalem, and apparently they're there not only to press their case, but also to press in around Paul. Luke says that they came down and they stood around him. Uh, it's as if they were closing in on Paul, enveloping him like hyenas surrounding a lone lion. The picture is one of an insatiable, menacing mob ready to pounce. One allegation after another, they press their charges against him. Not one or two or even three, but many, we're told. And these were no small infractions being levied in Paul's direction. Luke, Luke doesn't tell us what they were exactly, but from Paul's response, which we'll get to in a bit, it seems they were accusing him of breaking Jewish law, blaspheming the temple, and behaving in a seditious or treasonous manner toward Rome and the emperor himself. But notice... Although they brought many and serious charges, they couldn't prove any of them. Still, these were, these were very serious offenses. And if found guilty, Paul would suffer very serious consequences. These were capital offenses deserving of capital punishment. I want to pause here for a minute and just 
just ask the question, ever feel like life just seems totally unfair? Like everything and everyone is against you. I imagine you have. When the bills are piling and finances are already stretched thin and then the car breaks down and needs significant repair. When you're striving for a new position at work or school and someone less qualified gets it. When all your married friends are having children and you're not, though you desperately want children too. Even when trying to make the best of a bad hand, at times it seems the deck is just stacked against us, doesn't it? And yet, how do you respond in those moments? Because I think our response in those situations reveals reveals more about our view of God and His involvement in our lives than anything we might say or do when things are going well. Paul's life hung in the balance. It hung in the balance yet again, and yet again he was having to defend himself against allegations that were totally baseless and unfair. But two years earlier, when all this injustice began, God had told Paul that he would be a witness in Rome, so there must have been something in Paul, something concerning his trust in God that gave him strength to persevere, something to assure him that God was providentially directing his steps and even protecting his steps against the onslaught of his many enemies. I just finished watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy with my kids, the extended version over 12 hours of epic struggle for Middle Earth. And I suppose that's one of the benefits of quarantining, more time for the extended versions. You know the story. Wizards, wargs, orcs, urukai, trolls, Olakai, Balrogs, goblins, Mumakils, ring rays and fell beasts, and many other antagonists and enemies, including, of course, Shelob, the giant spider, because, after all, we all need more giant car-sized spiders in our lives. They're all in constant pursuit of a little hobbit named Frodo, who bears the burden of carrying and ultimately destroying the ring of Sauron, and in hopes of saving Middle-earth. Everywhere Frodo goes, everywhere he turns, the enemy is right there waiting. He cannot find any relief from their attack. And I think that's Paul in these chapters. For two years, Paul has had to defend himself against false accusations, and he's set in prison without cause. Two years. Two years. In our system, you can't detain someone for more than 24 hours unless you have strong enough evidence to bring credible charges. And yet here is Paul sitting in a Caesarean prison cell, unjustly accused. Three times already he's been tried, and on each occasion there was no evidence with which to keep him. And and even now, even here, though many and serious charges were brought, they couldn't prove any of it. 
But this was their last swing at him. And thankfully, they swung and missed. Paul attests yet again in verse 8, he was not, that he has not committed a single offense against Jewish law, against the Jewish temple, or against Rome or its emperor. And finally, thankfully, this is the last we see of the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews in the book of Acts. Certainly now, now more than ever, certainly this case will be dismissed, right? I mean, finally, finally on the basis of insufficient evidence. Nope. Because to our surprise, Festus, though knowing full well that Paul had done nothing wrong, he apparently begins to realize he's in over his head. He begins to warm to the idea of doing the Jews the favor they requested earlier. So in verse 9, Rather than release Paul as he should have, he asks Paul if he'd like to be transferred to Jerusalem to be tried there instead. Now, of course, Paul knew the threat to his life in Jerusalem, even if Festus didn't, but certainly Festus knew that Paul, he had no shot at a fair trial in Jerusalem. So it appears that Political expediency prevailed upon Festus that he was more concerned with appeasing the Jews than upholding justice. After all, he maybe thought, what's losing one innocent man if it means incurring the favor of an entire crowd? But Paul would have none of it. I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, he said. Basically, if I can't get justice here, what makes you think I'll get justice there? Paul knew that Festus knew he was innocent, that these many allegations were completely untrue. He wasn't trying to skate by or elude responsibility. In fact, he openly admits that if he's guilty of anything, of anything deserving death, he fully accepts responsibility and will face the consequences. But he wasn't guilty. And everyone knew it. So rather than be transferred back to Jerusalem, which he knew to be a death sentence, he played the only card left in his hand. He appealed to the emperor to have the emperor himself decide his case, which was his right as a Roman citizen. And so though his conspirators pursued him relentlessly, and though the system failed him repeatedly, Paul pleaded for justice resolutely. Having revisited this scene as it's detailed for us here, I want to spend the rest of our time just kind of taking a step back, just a small step back from the narrative to try to gain some perspective and hopefully to observe some underlying principles that I believe are as applicable today as, as ever. And I see at least three of them. 
one for each of the three characters in this dramatic episode. And the first principle is this. Religion without Jesus is lifeless and deadly. Religion without Jesus is lifeless and deadly. Let's not forget that the Jews who were railing against Paul so vehemently here, they were religious people. And in fact, religious leaders. They were chief priests and principal men. For them, Paul posed a threat to the religious establishment. Even Festus picked up on this when he recounts for King Agrippa all that has transpired. He says of the Jews later in verse 19, he says they had certain points of dispute with Paul about their own religion. And about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Let's also remember that Jewish leadership was largely against Jesus too. They were instrumental in plotting the murder of Jesus. And after successfully doing so, they wanted to believe that Jesus was still dead when in reality, he was very much alive, having resurrected from the dead the truth of which Paul had experienced firsthand. Still, just as they opposed and killed Jesus decades earlier, so they continued to oppose and seek the life of any who followed Jesus at that time. And I believe, I believe the Jewish leadership in the New Testament Gospels and here in the book of Acts, I believe, I believe they represent the danger of religion that is devoid of truth, or at least devoid of the whole truth, and therefore devoid of God. Because if the life of Jesus is not present in the life of the person who claims to follow God, then his or her religion is nothing more than a facade or a veneer. It's nothing more than a means of hypocrisy, or even worse, it's nothing more than a means to destructive chaos. In fact, history reveals that some of the worst things ever done have been carried out by those who claim to follow God when in truth Jesus is nowhere to be found in their lives at all. Religion without Jesus is lifeless and deadly. Number two, expedience for its own sake is the gateway to equivocation and compromise. Expedience for its own sake is the gateway to equivocation and compromise. Porcius Festus was not what you'd call a bad man. The historian Josephus Josephus actually describes him as as a prudent and honorable man. Unlike Felix, who came before him, Festus 
was relatively well respected, even though his time as governor was relatively brief. He died within a couple of years of taking office. However, though not a bad man, per se, something happened between verse 3, when Festus refused to try Paul in Jerusalem as the chief priest requested, and verse 9, when he began thinking maybe that wasn't such a bad idea. And I think that something that happened was that things didn't go as he expected, and when he had to pivot, his conviction gave way to compromise, and he chose political expediency over truth and justice. Had he dismissed the case at that point or declared Paul not guilty, the Jewish contingent would have gone ballistic, which would have opened up, it just would have posed a migraine of a headache for him, particularly in the early days of his rule. So in those pressure-packed moments, he caved and appeared ready to give the Jews what they wanted, even if it came at the expense of Paul's innocence and life. And at that point, it's at that point when he was in too deep and it was too late. Because little did he know that Paul was about to pivot also. And when Paul appeared to Caesar, Festus suddenly found his own life on the line. What would the emperor think of him upon learning that Paul, a Roman citizen, had been imprisoned and transferred without just cause? I'm at a loss. Festus said to Agrippa later in verse 20, hoping that that Agrippa could somehow provide a way out of his dilemma. I found that he did nothing deserving death, he said of Paul in verse 25, asserting Paul's innocence. I have nothing definitive to write about him, he said in verse 26, meaning that he had nothing of substance that would explain to Caesar why Paul's case landed on his desk. It seems to me unreasonable, he said again in verse 27, not to indicate the charges against him, and there were none. You see, because Festus failed to do the right thing when he should have at the right time, he made it much, much worse. Now, He couldn't convict Paul for fear of offending the Roman way, now that Paul had invoked his right of appeal. Nor could he release him for fear of offending the Jewish leaders. His failure to stand for truth put him in a no-win situation. Church inevitably, like Festus, We will find ourselves in unexpected situations where we are forced to choose between right and wrong. And what I've found, my experience, maybe it's yours too, what I've found when faced with such situations, when in those moments, in real time, I found that the voices that shout from the wrong side of things are usually the loudest and the desire for their approval in those moments is somehow the strongest. 
So we must decide now, today, how we will respond then. We need to decide before we get into that situation how we're going to respond. We must decide to be people of character and conviction who stand for what's right when it's neither comfortable nor convenient because when expedience is the determining factor, compromise isn't far behind. And then the third principle I see here is this. Asserting your rights is a right response to injustice. The Bible tells us In Romans 13, for instance, though there are other passages as well, but in Romans 13, the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms, be subject to the governing authorities. It says that authority comes from God and that existing authorities have been instituted by God. It cautions, it warns. That to resist authority is to resist God. To resist what God has appointed and those who do so will incur judgment. And this general approach to government and governmental authority is consistent throughout Scripture. And yet, in all honesty, I think it's probably one of the hardest things for us to accept and obey. When Paul appeals to Caesar then, he is asserting his right as defined by the system of government that was in place at that time. He's not bucking the system. He's not refuting the system. He's not bad-mouthing Festus who represented the system. Just as he didn't badmouth Governor Felix or Commander Lysias two years earlier, instead, Paul is asserting his right within the system, specifically the right to a fair trial. Now, I don't, I don't really care which side of the political aisle you're on today because all sides need to hear this. As followers of Jesus, we do not have the right to disrespect, slander, or otherwise reject our leaders in government simply because we hold different views. However, we do have a right to stand for what's right when it comes to obvious injustice. The Apostle Paul is a good example of this. Not only in this passage, but throughout this entire series of defenses, Paul models something about our rights and how to respond rightfully to government, to those in positions of authority, even those who operate from a different worldview and set of values. As hard as it may have been for him, Paul found a way to exercise his rights without compromising his integrity before God, and so must we. But I think perhaps even more astounding and applicable is that Paul, 
He indirectly points us to Jesus. I love this. The similarities between Paul's trials and those of Jesus are striking. Both were falsely accused by the Jewish religious leaders. Both were brought before Roman authorities. Both were wrongly detained, even though the Romans knew that each was innocent. Paul and Jesus shared similar experiences in these ways. And yet, unlike Paul, catch this, unlike Paul, who understandably and appropriately appealed to Caesar in response to the injustice he was facing, Jesus, when when he faced the highest injustice of them all, Jesus surrendered his rights. Incredibly so. You see, Jesus appealed to the Father the night prior in Gethsemane, remember? And so he gave up his rights on the cross to make us right with God. Enduring the ultimate injustice, the innocent Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Whereas it reads in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Instead, he continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. So, may you make an appeal? By all means, yes. Because asserting your rights is a right response to injustice. Just realize, though, that it's not the only response, and in fact, it's not the ultimate response. So when we do so, when we assert our rights, when we exercise our rights, let's be sure, not only to appeal to Caesar, but to an even higher authority, the highest of them all, Because just as Paul appeals to an earthly ruler, he effectively points us to King Jesus who brings us to God. May God bless you. Amen. Lord, once again, we want to just express our gratitude for these moments we've shared. Thank you for them. Thank you for speaking to us now out of the truth of your word. Thank you for impressing this truth upon us. And I pray that we would receive its instruction 
without a sense of fighting back or, or no unwillingness on our part. Just make us to be open and receptive to what you're saying to us even now. Would you identify those areas in our lives that need attention? Make sure, God, please help us to not fall into this trap of religion for its own sake. Because religion without Jesus is lifeless and deadly, and so bring us to Jesus. I pray for any out there who have strayed or wandered from Jesus, or perhaps who have never come into a relationship with Jesus, and I pray that you would bring them. And maybe they are very religious people, I don't know, but bring them to Jesus that they may experience life and life to the full. Make us to be people of conviction and character, people who stand for what's right without compromise. And then God, make us to be people who understand our rights and assert them well when appropriate, when there's obvious injustice. Keep us from slander and disrespect and unkindness. Help us to not compromise our integrity before you in this way. Instead, Lord, may you give us a good understanding of our rights and when to assert them and when to surrender them. And for these things and more, we just give you praise. We lay ourselves before you now. Go with us this week. We know that you are with us in the Lord Jesus. And so would you comfort us and encourage us and strengthen us for the week to come that we might be your people in this world and a good representation of you in this world. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.